Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ian Shin. Today on our podcast, I talk to Annalise Hines about her new book, Mahjong, A Chinese Game and the Making of Modern American Culture, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. Annalise Hines is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Oregon, where her research and teaching focus on modern U.S. history at the intersection of gender, sexuality, and race and ethnicity. In this insightful, accessibly written, and oftentimes even humorous book, Hines tells the trans-Pacific history of Mahjong, a game that many of us may be familiar with, either through our own or our family's passion for playing this game, or through its depiction in popular movies like The Joy Luck Club and Crazy Rich Asians. By examining the intersection of leisure and Orientalism, Hines shows how Mahjong shaped the lives and identities of Chinese and Americans alike, but particularly white women, Chinese Americans, and Jewish Americans. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yin Shin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Annalise Hines about her new book, Mahjong, A Chinese Game and the Making of Modern American Culture. Annalise, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Annalise, I wonder if we could start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So I am originally from the West Coast. I grew up in Southern California. I uh, went to Whitman College for my undergraduate education and stayed in the little town of Walla Walla, um, where Whitman is, um, for a few years after I graduated to uh, work in education and and social work. Um, And while I was doing that, I was also taking Mandarin Chinese language classes. Um, And after living in Walla Walla for a few years, I lived in southwestern China with my partner. Um, we taught English at Yunnan University in Kunming, which is in um, the far southwest of China. And we were there in the 2007 to 2008 academic year, which is the year leading up to the Beijing Olympics, which was a really interesting time to be there. Um, we then moved to San Francisco where I lived while um, getting my PhD at Stanford University. Um, And from there, I got my first tenure track job at the University of Texas at Dallas, lived there for three years before coming to the University of Oregon. And this is my third year here. So that's my my education and academic background anyway. (laughs) That's fantastic. And and I wonder if, um, you know, just given the topic of the book, if... And when you first encountered Mahjong, was it in China or was that something that you uh, grew up with in terms of your family, you know, playing the game? Mm-hmm. Um, I first really encountered it in China, um, you know, being from Southern California, which is a richly diverse area. Most of my friends growing up were Asian American from uh, all different um, national backgrounds and their families. But none of them really played Mahjong, um, at least not that um, I ever saw or heard about. And I am not from um, a Jewish American background, which also has a really strong history with the game. 
So mahjong was pretty new to me when I moved to China, but in China, it was part of the fabric of life. It was really played everywhere in public and private spaces by men and women together or separately, old and young together or separately. Um, And, you know, there was the uh, shopkeepers or restaurant workers would play it in the alleyways during their breaks and retirees would play it in parks um, anytime. (laughs) Um, And uh, I was interested in it um, in part because of its obvious, really lovely sensory aspects. You know, I talk about in the book, and if you talk to any player, they'll talk to you about how the tiles sound, how they look, how they feel. And that was really immediately obvious, even, um, again, just kind of being around it. And I learned the very basic Chinese version uh, while we were there from um, a Chinese friend who's who had been taught by her grandfather, who is from Shanghai. Um, and we didn't learn any of the really intricate um, strategies around scoring in particular, but I did learn the basic version of the game. And while we were living there, my aunt visited us um, and she was, again, not Jewish, but grew up in a strongly Jewish part of Denver, Colorado in the 1950s and 60s. And growing up, a lot of her friends' moms played mahjong. And as a middle-aged woman, she had a lot of um, friends who played mahjong. (laughs) And she just asked the question, why do my Jewish friends play this Chinese game? And I thought that uh, surely someone would have answered that question. Maybe I could find it on Wikipedia. And what I quickly discovered was that a lot of people had asked that question. And there were theories and um, things that seemed like misinformation circulating but no one had done the scholarly research to find out. Um, and that was really the seed of what would later become my dissertation and, and book. But I didn't go to, to Stanford thinking I was going to write my dissertation on Mahjong. But it did plant that seed that I returned to in the fir- my first couple of years there. I love that it was a question from your aunt uh, that, that sort of prompted the, the project. I, I think one of the things, hopefully, that many folks who are listening and who will read the book, um, you know, will identify with is that strong family connection uh, of, mm-hmm. you know, I certainly remember I grew up in Hong Kong and at family weddings or family events, you know, the kind of green felt table would come up, yes. uh, you know, and and people would, uh, you know, we called it saipai, which I think you you referenced that in, in, in Cantonese, we called it saipai, which is kind of the washing of the tiles to kind of randomize right. them before you select them. Um, and so, you know, whether it's family connections or, you know, you referenced this in, in the epilogue, um, those scenes that many people may recognize from the Joy Luck Club or Crazy Rich Asians, those scenes that use Mahjong you know, as a cultural reference, um, that right. this will be, you know, hopefully a book that appeals to lots of people, in part because I think as you're, as you're mentioning, it's sort of multivalent, right? It has sort of lots of kinds of meanings that it produces for, for um, people from all walks of life. Um, exactly. So, so why don't we, I, I think that's maybe a good um, point for us to, to dive into the book. And I want to start by, you know, asking you to talk a little bit about sort of the central argument um, of the book. And and here, you know, you write um, in the book that Mahjong helped Americans navigate the tensions of modernity, which 
to you was the simultaneous nostalgic yearnings and excited embrace of progress during especially the decades of the 1920s, but I think beyond that as well. So I wondered if you could maybe start by talking a little bit about how you think about modernity um, as a mm-hmm. condition that Mahjong helps to mediate for Americans of all different walks of life. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's certainly a large and rich scholarly literature on modernity and often debating the kind of um, how does one define modernity? What are the um, uh, problems with creating a single definition often rooted in a colonial um, uh, approach? I am, I hope I'm contributing to the literature around modernity, but that's not, I'm not trying to weigh in on um, uh, really creating any kind of strict box around what I'm defining. I'm, I'm focused on American culture in this context, thinking about modernity in the early 20th century, particularly the 1920s. So this uh, post-industrial transformation of economy and society. And that has a wide range of effects that include things like the transformation of work, workspaces, time that goes along with work, um, and also relatedly transformations of the home gender roles inside the home, um, and urbanization. Uh, and at the end of the 1920, uh, the 19th century, rather, at the end of the 1800s, uh, mass immigration that really potentially has the possibility of transforming demographics of the United States. And all of these things in some ways come to a head in the 1920s, along with the United States's rising place in the world, particularly in the wake of World War I and the devastations in Europe, the United States emerges um, having uh, economically profited from World War I without as many uh, tragic losses of life and is an increasing power, especially in East Asia. So in the 1920s, Americans are talking about and thinking about themselves as, quote, moderns, and they use that word as a noun, in, in new and very explicitly self-conscious ways. And um, we see Mahjong explode as a cultural phenomenon in this milieu, and it does so in ways that combine race, gender, and sexuality as uh, a again, as a cultural phenomenon in the way that people are, uh, especially, although not exclusively, white Americans embracing a game that is explicitly a Chinese game, is marketed as popular because it's Chinese, and is also um, uh, sparking a performative culture around it in which white women especially are dressing up in Chinese costume and talking about the, the words that they're using to play the game, the Chinese words and the Chinese costumes as titillating, as um, exotic and sexualized because of the way that um, Asian women have been historically sexualized in the American context. And so you have this combination of on one of the um, most significant areas of change in the 1920s is the sexual revolution. And we think of this very often as manifest and led by youth culture, which it certainly was, and the iconic figure of the flapper, which spreads around the world. But here we have 
um, the game embraced and uh, uh, proclaimed by society matrons. In other words, people who are in these um, eminently respectable, often very wealthy contexts who are married, maybe middle-aged, and are inhabiting this new boundary and are able to do that in a respectable fashion through Mahjong, through this new hot society game. And I think this, when you start to see transformations like this that aren't just in a kind of, um, not just the avant-garde, not just the people who are really um, pushing the envelope, but also the, the establishment that's also when you, and, and people like housewives, right? Writing in their diaries. This is where you see, okay, this is how cultural change really happens across societal levels, how things um, uh, uh, steep, right? How they, how they become established. When we see individuals um, inhabiting a, a realm of, uh, fantasy and self-making that combines elements of race and gender and sexuality, we can see these shifting um, boundaries in American society illuminated through the way that people are writing about, um, discussing, celebrating this game, and how people are responding to them. So both people who are pushing back and saying, this game is threatening to a kind of established American society, and we're going to object to that on some reason, on some different bases. Or also Chinese Americans saying, okay, this is a Chinese game. People are, all these white Americans are talking about it as a Chinese game. That's reflective of me and my place in the society. How am I going to respond to that? How am I going to navigate that? And we see, again, all these registers connecting at this time. I think that's a what what that makes me think of is something that you wrote in the introduction. Um, you know, because as you're talking about the ways that different Americans latch on to the game for their own purposes, it makes me reflect on this line from the intro that says, "Sometimes mahjong in the book will serve as a lens, and sometimes mm-hmm. as an agent." So I wonder if you maybe could speak a little bit about because I think we certainly can see how you know, in the ways that white women take up Mahjong in the 1920s or Chinese Americans use that as a way to position themselves, you know, in, a, in an otherwise hostile country, that in those ways, Mahjong serves as a lens. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about how Mahjong you see serving also as, uh, or acting as an agent, uh, whether in the 1920s or, or in later periods as well. How do we understand a particular cultural commodity like a game, uh, like the game of Mahjong, both as a lens and as an agent? Yes, thank you so much for highlighting that. That was really um, a question that uh, runs throughout. And I think whenever one is analyzing an inanimate object or a cultural phenomenon, something that's not attached to a conscious being, right, making choices in the world, how do we think about it um, without anthropomorphizing it, but also recognizing the ways that something can actually develop its own shaping power based on the ideas that people attach to it. So that's really what I mean when I talk about it as an agent. I'm I'm not saying it has a mind of its own, but actually that certain, um, because of the momentum that is developed in this global fad of the 1920s, 
because of the particular meaning and resonances attached to it over time by different groups of people, whether that's a connection to heritage, whether that's a connection to ideas of the other, um, whether that is uh, a kind of um, a symbol of Americanness or foreignness um, of something that is about the home or is disruptive to the home. All of these things that that get connected to the game, then as the game spreads in popularity, as people pick it up, as they play with it, as they talk about it, it itself then opens up um, uh, the the next realm of cultural conversations um, or imaginations or possibilities. The, the way people are using it develop its own kind of momentum. And at the same time, Part of what I mean by that is also about the the nature and rhythms of the game itself, how the game is played, um, the tempo of the uh, rhythms of cycles between play and shuffling or washing the tiles, how those create specific kinds of pauses that by their structural nature, by the, the nature of having a small group of people, often the same group of people, but not always, right? You might have a different groups every time, but, the, but a small number of people who are playing something that has a specific tempo that creates spaces for episodic conversation, it itself actually structures in certain kinds of interaction that lend themselves to relationship building. And that is not necessarily unique to Mahjong or connected to ideas attached to it, but it is something that is um, uh, less common, certainly uh, not as true in something like a, a game of cards where shuffling a deck of cards can be very, very quick. Um, and that itself has uh, certain patterns of socialization that emerge around the game across. Uh, place and time. I think that also helps us to maybe um, talk to listeners a little bit about your sources because that kind of um, discursive, um, you know, analysis as well as kind of the analysis of the practice of mahjong necessitates using lots of different kinds of sources to tease out those threads, right? There are the ways that you read kind of, you know, fiction and newspaper articles and magazine articles speak to how people are talking about Mahjong, but also the way that, um, you know, people are playing the game and the staccato-like conversations that take place in between the shuffling and, and play, right? That emerges, I sense, from a lot of the oral histories that you also then conducted, um, you know, with folks who grew up playing this game or who watched their, you know, uh, uh, mothers or grandmothers and aunts, uh, you know, play the game. You also look at things like material culture and photographs. Can you tell us a little bit about the range of sources you use, you know, whether or not you began the project with the kind of full range of sources that ended up making it into the book or whether or not you uh, later on, you know, brought on the oral histories, for example, if, you know, if you felt like you needed, you know, uh, uh, some more information to fill in the gaps, how did the, how did the sort of range of sources that you use for this project, how did that take shape? Sure. Um, yeah. Thank you for that question. As I say in the book there, there is no archive for Mahjong. So it really is a, and ha has been a kind of needle in the haystack um, search where I 
at, throughout the years, um, just continually would put out many different fe- feelers for lots of different possibilities, whether that is, um, as we can talk more about connections for oral histories, or um, trying to track down people who actually manufactured the game, or trying to um, find people who uh, could speak to a much earlier history of the game in Chinese American communities, whether that was written or oral, all these different range of um, sources, I would just continually put out feelers and try to trace, track down wherever they led me. Um, Mm. But I began, so I started, like I uh, mentioned a little bit ago, with this question of the connection between Jewish uh, Americans specifically and this Chinese game. And when I scratched the surface of the historical record, really thinking again about the um, more mid-century question, that's what I was familiar with, I began with newspaper databases and I didn't put any restrictions on time or place, right? I just wanted to see, okay, what if I try a a different variety of words, Mahjong has been spelled in different ways over time and in different contexts. So if I, I, if I throw a bunch of search terms in here, where will this lead me? I'm just going to leave it open. And what I discovered was this enormous national fad and really international fad of the 1920s when there were literally hundreds of newspaper articles in just the span of a few years. I had no idea that fad existed. When I began this research, no one was really talking about the 1920s fad yet. That has changed over the last several several years. But at the time, it was virtually forgotten. And uh, I... Once I saw that and and went into the articles and saw how um, incredibly intense this fad was, saw the language that people were using to describe this game in often, as I mentioned before, extremely racialized, sometimes sexualized terms, I knew, okay, there is really a a fascinating and important story here. um, And I'm I'm going to move my question earlier. Um, But that was just the kind of first level, right? Is that's where, that's where I began. And as you mentioned, um, one of the things that I discovered as I continued to um, try to hunt down different avenues of inquiry, um, try to discover who was playing the game, in what context, what meaning did they attach to it? I also ran across, um, ran into a lack of sources for this mid-century connection to Jewish American women in particular, those sources really weren't showing up in any of the written record. And it was um, a time also when the, the, the generation who were young mothers in the 1940s and 50s were, were quite elderly. And um, sadly, a number of the people I've interviewed have since passed, passed away. But I was able to interview uh, you know, more than 50 people and or their children who had played the game. And oral histories were absolutely essential to trying to un- have a, gain an ethnographic-inspired or ethnographic-type understanding of culture, of ritual, of socialization, of meaning. And those sources really did not exist in the written record virtually at all. Um, 
And at the same time, in an earlier period, transcribed oral histories, interviews um, conducted in Cantonese and then translated in the 1970s and 80s with Chinese Los Angelinos talking about their experiences um, in Angel I- at Angel Island in Los Angeles, um, their lives for this earlier period were also an essential part of really, again, trying to gain an understanding of the texture of life. Um, and the, I can talk more about kind of why I have different chronological focuses in the book in the way that I do. Um, but in both cases, those oral histories were really essential sources. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about sources is that um, as I, by going to places where I had an inkling that, okay, I have enough contextual knowledge, for example, to know that I'm, I'm learning that, uh, that Mahjong was uh, present in Um, among Americans living in Shanghai in the 1910s and 20s. Okay, I know that there are somebody's letters at Harvard, uh, women who were living as Americans in China in that time period. Almost certainly they're going to be talking about Mahjong. I have another set of sources that I know talk about Mahjong from um, uh, someone who was selling those, uh, who, who was a distributor and marketer at the time, so I'm going to go there and then look at any other person's papers who I have enough contextual clues may be talking about Mahjong. And Mahjong wasn't something that archivists were, were marking in the finding aids, in other words, right? I just had to get the contextual knowledge to go there so that when I showed up, and I could, I could find out who hunted down based on the likelihood. And indeed, every time they were talking about Mahjong. It just wasn't marked. It wasn't listed. And so I had to, you know, going there in person made such a difference. Um, and then like showing up at that same trip in the, um, a, a, an old games factory that was still manufacturing game and it, games. And it had this dusty room of amazing Parker brothers, uh, this informal I- archive. There was a scrapbook there created by, a, a really important early importer of the game, Joseph Babcock. And it was scrapbooks with uh, newspapers, newspaper clippings from the 1920s that have completely disappeared. Those newspapers were never digitized. They weren't put on micro- microfilm. I would not have been able to find them any other way. But because I showed up and there was a, and, and the scrapbook, someone had preserved the scrapbook, I was able to gain just a gold mine of information from that scrapbook and from the scrapbook created by one of the founders of the National Mahjong League, which was preserved by her daughter. So, you know, hunting down, going down these different rabbit holes, knowing when you're headed towards a dead end so you can pivot to something else. That's all something that I, you know, um, learned by trial and error and, and just a lot of um, uh, trying to hunt things up by, by hook and by crook. That's just amazing, and I, I I think as you know, perhaps many of our listeners who are historians can can also recognize the sort of thrill of discovering, <laughs> you know, some of these documents um, and how precarious, you know, and and you you referenced earlier that your starting point had been, 
you know, newspaper databases. And oftentimes we forget that not everything has been digitized. And that's one of the struggles right. of teaching, you know, these days is it seems so easy to do research. And yet, um, you know, there, there are major pieces that, that are missing, whether because the newspapers have been digitized or they were never written about in the first place. And so I, I love that. And, and it, it reminds me of the line, you know, where you talked about how there was for this and for many other topics, right, that there's no centralized archive you know, about Mahjong or, mm-hmm. or a number of mm-hmm. other cultural trends, you know, and so I, I think this book hopefully serves as a really great example for folks who are thinking about and, and, and doing, you know, similar kinds of topics and how to think about kind of putting together their, their research methods and their, and their um, you know, thinking about sources. But since, since you brought up um, Joseph Babcock, I wonder if maybe we can transition to talking about some of the chapters. And I'll just say for the for the listeners, you know, the book is so rich and we're not going to be able to get into with the time that we have today, all of the different, you know, bits and pieces of the book. There are 10 chapters plus the intro and the epilogue. Uh, and so we'll kind of try to cover some of the main points that jumped out to me, you know, and, and Annalise, I, I, you know, would love for you to also, you know, highlight some of the things that you, you feel are particularly important about the story that you tell here. But it seems important to start with Joseph Park Babcock um, as the <laughs> kind of explanation of how the United States and how Americans ended up getting so crazy in love with Mahjong in the 1920s. And one of the things that to me was especially interesting about this period, you know, and you've already talked a little bit about this sort of gendering of Mahjong, is how it was compared against Bridge, which was another kind of major, you know, uh, a game that was of, of major interest. Um, and, and one of the things that I love, and I wish that we could show folks who are listening this particular illustration, I actually sent it to my in-laws. My father-in-law runs a bridge club uh, in his retirement. <laughs> and and the, the one that I sent him was the illustration um, in the book where a bunch of bridge players um, are holding off uh, this onslaught, this oncoming onslaught of Mahjong players who are, you know, kind of uh, uh, accompanied by this dragon that's blowing smoke out of its nostril. And the bridge players um, are, are kind of like, you know, they flipped over their table, they're hiding behind it, they're getting ready to throw chairs at these Mahjong players. <laughs> and so there's this kind of sense that Mahjong is going to take over from this you know, longstanding, you know, westernized European game of bridge. So I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about Babcock, about the the, the the sort of, again, valences, the multiple valences that are attached, you know, not just in terms of gender, but also in terms of what it meant for, you know, the United States to become, um, you know, as you said, that, that Mahjong would be emblematic of America's modern future. What did that modern future mm-hmm. look like for folks who were playing Mahjong in the 1920s? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um... Babcock, Joseph Park Park Babcock was a Standard Oil business representative who was stationed in China. And unusually, he learned Chinese. I'm assuming he learned the local dialect. We just don't know exactly um, what form of the language he learned, but he learned it by living there. And like I say, that was unusual for a great many foreigners who... Um, in this semi-imperial time or semi-colonial time, rather, often relied on Chinese people knowing enough of their language, often English, British, the British were the largest number who were there, um, and, uh, and, and or enough English to get by and really kept in this, again, semi-colonial um, context apart from Chinese people and Chinese culture, apart from servant-based relationships. And um, Babcock learned Chinese, he learned Mahjong um, from Chinese players, and 
he knew that it was a good game, a great game um, that, and he had a hunch that he could um, help other foreigners uh, learn it, especially Americans who, although I don't want to overstate their kind of cultural, um, you know, egalitarianism of Americans in China, it was certainly still a semi-colonial perspective. It was less um, uh, based in this deep sense of hierarchy and remove than really established British um, Shanghailanders who were there, particularly now talking about the area in and around Shanghai. And um, so he, among others, um, he helped popularize the game among especially Americans and then increasingly other foreigners in especially Shanghai, but also then in these um, routes of Americans and other foreigners traveling in China, including very much Beijing. And initially in my research, I had heard about Babcock. He was quite a self-promoter. He was fiercely territorial of the Mahjong market. And I was very skeptical about whether or not he really deserved as much credit for this as he said he did, um, because so much of our information was really coming from him. But over the course of my research, so I did approach this with quite a bit of skepticism. But over the course of my research, I really did become convinced that he was never the only person spreading the game or helping popularize it or changing it or adapting it. But he was probably the single most important person in making this transition to um, an American and a global phenomenon. Um, and, uh, you know, I won't go into detail now, just in the interest of time, but of, of exactly how he kind of takes the steps he and his business partners from Americans in China to um, a kind of test case on Catalina Island among the Hollywood rich and famous in the summer of 1920 to launching it um, nationally in 1922. But all along the way, it's, it's gaining in popularity. And as you mentioned, what had been an established leisure activity that was especially associated with British culture, especially associated with um, educated circles and elite circles was the game of bridge. And that too took, uh, became popular in different forms over time. Um, but that was a, a, an established form that Americans had picked up from England and from British influence. And so when this game of Mahjong explodes into popularity, people are both consciously choosing it over bridge because some people say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sick and tired of cards. This is something new and exciting and different. Some people say, you know, bridge is a very high pressure partner-based game, right? If you make a mistake, you're letting your partner down or vice versa. Mahjong is an individual-based game. It's freeing in that way. Um, and it also has a mix of skill and luck, whereas there's, there's bridge is almost entirely skill, right? So there is in some ways an element of chance that also means that Mahjong can play, can be played in very serious, very competitive ways, but also as a more relaxed leisure game where you can be a little bit distracted um, or a little bit relaxed. You don't have to be 100% focused every time, depending on how intensively you're playing it. So for all these reasons, people are explicitly saying, hey, Mahjong is where it's at. 
but at the same time, because Mahjong was understood and marketed um, and performed as explicitly a Chinese game, it is discussed immediately in direct terms as uh, a, in terms directly akin to language used in immigration debates. So again, this is on the heels of uh, an era of mass immigration and also an era of exclusion targeting first Chinese immigrants that then becomes um, a, a framework that gets solidified in 1924 with the Johnson Reed Act that further restricts Asian immigration and imposes nation-based quotas um, for the first time to, to other nations outside of China, which had been this first kind of excluded group. And so the language from that era was uh, xenophobic words like yellow peril. And that's exactly what is being um, applied then to Mahjong. It's often tongue in cheek because people are very aware they're talking about a game. They're not talking about people or economic competition, but it's, it's explicitly playing off of that resonance and therefore in some ways becomes this, this um, uh, way of having some of those same conversations that can be brushed off as humorous, but often have those much darker and genuine kind of undertones. And so what does it mean to have a the stalwart British game of bridge replaced by a Chinese game? Is it the same kind of cultural threat as a demographic transformation of America where Anglo-Americans are no longer the dominant group? Um, and that is, those are very, very much the same terms. Again, often, often in self-consciously um, humorous or hysterical ways, like you referenced in that cartoon, right? That's obviously tongue-in-cheek, but it is getting at something that is also real and repeated over and over and over again. Mahjong is just endlessly compared to Bridge. And um, yet, as you say, it was seen as, um, because it was new, uh, it was also discussed as the game of the future. So particularly by its promoters, Norma Babcock, for example, Joseph Park Babcock's wife, who was really important in promoting the game. She talks about, you know, um, Bridge is where it was, Mahjong is where it's at. And it's important that that is being, um, that, that this hugely popular and influential game is spreading from the United States to the rest of the world. That Europe and England are picking up the game's popularity because Americans are playing it. That's really the first time this is happening for a cultural trend. Americans had long followed Europe and especially England's league in um, markers of refinement, in consuming goods or fashions because it was popular in Britain. Here, it's the opposite is true again, a, a really notable way for the first time. And uh, it's, it's even coming then from the West Coast, from the Pacific, not New York City. Um, and that itself was highlighted and uh, again, especially by um, uh, promoters saying this is indicative of 
the future is looking westward. The future is looking toward the Pacific. The future is kind of quintessentially American in this westward gaze. And uh, at the same time, in their business strategy, they understood that it was actually also essential to have the established tastemakers in especially New York City, but also the other kind of uh, rich and famous people of the Northeast, that these people needed to popular embrace the game and talk about it publicly in order to popularize it nationally. So there is this kind of tension, right, of this emerging sense of the future, emphasizing that as a um, still really led by Anglo-Americans, but in this sense of emerging onto the world stage by looking westward and westward all the way to Asia. I think that's that's a, a connection that you know you and I both share uh, in in terms of our scholarly interest um, of how uh, you know during this period the United States starts to look across the Pacific and understands itself as a Pacific facing country and that that's where the the future of world events uh, will 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 be centered. I think to me the other tension that's really fascinating and we'll touch on this probably a little bit later in our conversation too. Um, is the tension between a national market or a national imaginary and some of the more regional bases of the game, right? And so you talk a little bit about how it emerges out of the Pacific coast um, and it is surprising to people because it does come out of that instead of the cultural capitals of New York and Boston. But we also see later that the game has deep attachments and roots in places like the Catskills and upstate New York or, you know, in in, in Ohio and Oklahoma in the Midwest, right, where military mm-hmm. bases and, and banks, you know, kind of use the game for their own purposes. And one of the things that really fascinated me and that I hope folks will really dig into to is how the game really does kind of bounce between different scales and registers from kind of the regional to the national and the international. I really love that about the book. I think maybe, you know, I, I would love to maybe uh, ask you to talk a little bit more about the kind of dangers of the game, especially as it becomes sort of overly popular. And I'll just quickly mention, you know, again, to folks that unfortunately we can't get to all of the different chapters. One of the things that did stand out to me about some of the earlier chapters is the way that you talk about the materiality of the game. um, And in particular, talk about the process of manufacturing. One of the things that sort of blew my mind was the insight that in fact, a lot, some of the materials that came from making uh, mahjong tiles were exported from the United States, like cow bones, bovine bones. Um, And so to have a Chinese game that was made from American materials that was then re-exported to the United States is just this very fascinating kind of (laughs) circuit of of consumption and production. But instead of dwelling on that, I'd love to ask you to talk about some of the ways that the game was seen as detrimental to people's lives, especially when it came to to women. You write in the chapter um, about sort of Mahjong as a fad, especially among white women, that there were these concerns about conditions that would arise both social and physical due to Mahjong. So Mahjong-itis was a, you know, a, 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 in, in quotes, uh, not an actual uh, uh, illness, but, but you know, sort of a, a, a physical condition that people thought, along with Mahjong eyes, right, that, uh, that people might develop as a result of playing the game. And also social problems like, you know, things um, uh, that was that were manifested in songs like Since Ma is Playing Mahjong. So tell us a little bit about the kind of downsides that people perceive. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we talked a little bit about kind of how it uh, emblematizes America's future. What kinds of downsides do people read into Mahjong based on mm-hmm. its popularity? Mm-hmm. So 
the game quickly becomes strongly associated with women, especially with white women in the American context. Um, and I, I think it does so because of the way that um, Asian uh culture, particularly East Asian cultures, have long been understood in American, in the American imaginary, in ways that overlap with Orientalism, um, to especially feminize Asian uh, people and cultures. And so I think that that's a big part of this. And as, and, and it does, like I said, really become this huge fad where people are spending a lot of time and money talking about playing this game. Um, and it is, uh, it is essentially and inherently a leisure activity. And it's a leisure activity that, again, women were playing with their husbands and couples were playing it with other couples, but it was also a game that women were playing with other women. And it was a game then that, um, in its kind of sense of overwhelming popularity, combined with the idea of it being a Chinese game, evokes these uh, stereotypes and fears from the late 19th century that white women are easily overwhelmed by Chinese influence, that whether through kind of the sense of luxury and sensuousness of oriental objects or opium, right? There's, a, there's language that connects the um, allure and addictive qualities of mahjong with opium and how this, this threat that still was widely circulated in the early 20th century, this idea that white women would um, uh, be seduced by um, Chinese men and or culture and kind of lose that sense of, lose their markers of whiteness and or potentially actually be sexually seduced and um, lose their either virginity or their sexual, um, you know, uh, belonging to a white man. And you see that show up in fiction and in songs surrounding the game. You also see it show up um, differently in, in the sense of uh, the concern over the disruption of how homemakers' domestic duties and time that they ostensibly should be spending on productive domestic work for their families instead going to this game. And we see that show up very in very serious ways by moral reformers saying, you know, we've got this youth ep epidemic of, of youth rebelliousness and, and delinquency, and this is caused by all these distracted mothers playing mahjong. But you also see it then connected to what I was just referring to um, as uh, this fear of seduction by um, Chinese men and um, combine in this sense of the domestic sphere at risk by and being disrupted by Chinese influence. And so where you see this um, discussed most frequently is in like fiction and songs. And again, it tends to have this very uh, kind of bubbly pop culture humor overlaid a very, very overlaying a very dark, often violent message where over and over again in these stories, the plays are also part of this. Um, there's a uh, 
Chinese male figure who is teaching the game or is um, introducing the game and either uh, sexually seducing a white woman or, or trying to unsuccessfully, or simply in the song, since Ma is playing Mahjong, actually just she, be, the figure of Ma takes on these kind of stereotypical trappings of um, Chinese people, Chinese food, um, and completely abandons her domestic duty. And in each of these cases, a white man kills a Chinese man. And that is how the story is resolved. Um, and again, it's often in this very kind of like jovial tone or bouncy foxtrot tune in the, in the case of the song. Um, and it's, uh, and it's very consistent and it's very disturbing, um, to, to really see this kind of reassertion and reenactment of literally white patriarchal authority over a cultural change that is both linked to these very real social transformations around gender roles and women's power and authority in the home, um, and the um, kind of persistent fears and threats around cultural change, and in this case, particularly uh, Chinese influence and the, the the meanings and the stereotypes attached to that. I think what you just said maybe helps us to illuminate another important aspect of the book, which is your attention to the role of Mahjong within Chinese and Chinese American communities in the United States. And I, I will just say that one of the, to me, one of the most interesting um, uh, chapters of the book, uh, which we won't have time to talk about, but I want to just mention for listeners, is your attention to the role of uh, Mahjong during detention, both on Angel Island, but also during uh, World War II in Japanese American internment camps. And, and we don't often hear very much about the role of leisure in these contexts, mm -hmm. but I would really um, you know, encourage folks to, to look at those chapters. But to, to return to what you were, you were saying earlier about the ways that Chinese uh, people factor into this process of cultural transformation is their involvement in teaching this game uh, and the way that they identify with it. So you write, for example, that Chinese Americans embraced Mahjong for both its perceived Chineseness and its perceived Americanness. Tell us a little bit about this kind of, again, for Chinese Americans, this multivalent aspect of Mahjong. What role does Mahjong play for the Chinese American community during the same period that it's very popular among uh, especially mm -hmm. white women, but white Americans in general. Right. Um, I think, you know, my assumption, and I think most people's assumption would be that most Chinese Americans knew this game and then this, you know, huge phenomenon uh, became popular around them um, of other Americans picking up this game. And that's not actually the case. Most Chinese Americans did, were not familiar with this game before the early 1920s. Um, and that's simply because it was one of many games. Um, it was known, although it was becoming more popular in China, it was spreading. Uh, it was still mostly known in certain urban centers, which were not the same places that most Chinese migrants had come uh, from in the generations previous. And so, uh, Again, it was becoming more popular, but it wasn't, there was no reason for people to be thinking about it or talking about it as different from the rich game 
other game playing options in China until it becomes this enormous international fad and people are really thinking about it and talking about it as somehow definitive of and representative of something essential about China. And so that changes the game's meaning both in China and for Chinese Americans. And um, for Chinese Americans, this game becomes one of a small range of points of connection across generations where um, uh, in the 1920s, there is a significant demographic shift as you have in this era of, of immigration exclusion, um, you have an American generation, born generation coming of age, and they are forming the American born youth generation is forming a larger percentage of the Chinese American population than has been true before. And they're coming of age in the midst of this youth revolution that's happening in the United States, but is also happening in China, right? This is a, this is a revolutionary period in China. Um, and so this, this tension and lack of connection across generations um, shows up also in terms of how people are spending their time, what they're connecting over. And Mahjong is, is something that both um, older, uh, quote, sojourners um, are playing, right? These, these people who came um, as uh, workers who are not attached to nuclear families, they're playing the game in general stores and on market days. Um, laundry workers are playing the game and college students, right? Uh, Chinese Americans who are going to USC and Berkeley and Columbia, they're playing the game and they're playing it um, in across spaces and, and, uh, and it means something in each of these different contexts. Um, but in both cases, there is a sense of, of connection to China, as well as a sense of this is part of American culture as well. And for the older generation, the fact that this huge uh, national fad is taking off, international fad is taking off, led, you know, led by and associated with kind of glamorous, very respectable figures removes a, an association with gambling that to the extent that people knew about mahjong many of them were like this is a this is a this is a night world game right this is a kind of courtesan hall game i don't want i i don't i don't see this as respectable i'm a I, i'm a christian for example right i don't want to associate with this game well this changes not entirely there are still a lot of chinese christians who reject the game but many people do start to see it differently. And for the young, they're seeing it as um, uh, a, a wonderful game that is also a source of cultural connection and pride, as well as a sense of connection to being young and modern and connected to college culture, right? It can be both of those things. Um, and so the way people navigate that um, inside Chinese American communities, as well as vis-a-vis white Americans and, and consumers of Mahjong, that uh, each of those kinds of interactions creates a different connection or tension with the game. Um, but for many, especially younger Chinese Americans who 
are going to, you know, American born going to uh, American universities, they don't have the same options for summer employment that most white college students do. They're operating in a, um, a job market that's not only strongly sex segregated, but also racially discriminatory. And for these few years, Mahjong becomes a really um, uh, valuable economic opportunity because they're seen as authoritative sources for Mahjong or authentic sources for Mahjong, even if, in fact, they're learning it in the same Americanized context. So there's a moment in which this um, constant tension of being seen as a foreigner, as being associated with China, there are ways that young Chinese Americans in navigating that tension and pushing against it are also able to use it as an economic opportunity or as an opportunity to push against negative stereotypes, um, to push against sometimes cultural appropriation and say, no, this is a Chinese game. You can't you know, strip that from us. I think this insider-outsider tension that you've just talked about vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese-American community also helpfully um, allows us to think about why uh, eventually the game becomes so popular within the Jewish-American community, right? And I think mm -hmm. this is maybe where we'll, we'll end up the last three chapters of the book, really talk about the kind of post-war Americanization of the game. And here there are changes both in terms of its rules with the rise of an organization called the National uh, Mahjong League, as well as the creation of new kinds of materials like the playing rack. But where I maybe wanted to end is to give you a chance, because at the beginning you sort of said that the project began with your reflection on the fact that there is, although there's lots of that's been written or kind of speculated about why Mahjong becomes such a popular Jewish American pastime, there hadn't been scholarly research. So I wanted to give you a chance to maybe provide your explanation after years of research of, of your understanding as to why Mahjong becomes such a touchstone. And I should say, you know, I, I, I'm with some friends, uh, including uh, a Jewish American friend who was, when I told him that I was, you know, going to be talking to you today about this book, he immediately said, oh yeah, my grandmother played, you know, Mahjong. <laughs> and I've always kind of wondered why. So how would you, how, how do you explain the popularity of Mahjong within the Jewish American community and what special meanings and significance does it carry for that particular community? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the roots of the Jewish American connection with the game are in this 1920s fad, um, when it really thoroughly becomes a part of mainstream American culture. But it's not that Jewish Americans were playing it any differently from other white Americans. Uh, they were certainly, especially at this at that period of time, um, uh, German um, heritage. Jewish Americans and reform synagogues are hosting some of the same, very similar type events as other um, groups in the 1920s. And the fad dies out uh, as this fervent, um, passionate fad in a few years, but pockets of players remain. And um, there are different forms that are uniquely American, and I should add that today there are over 40 variants of Mahjong that exist around the world in different countries. Um, and there are multiple specifically American variations. But the, the largest is known as, Amer that is now popularly known as American Mahjong, is the form that was created by the National Mahjong League. The second largest American vari variation was created by Air Force officers' wives 
Um, and it's called Wright Patterson uh, Mahjong based on the name of an Ohio based air, uh, base. <laughs> um, but that's another story. <laughs> um, the National Mahjong League was formed in the, in the late 1930s by a group of women who had continued to play the game and particularly uh, influenced by one woman named Dorothy Meyerson, who had, in fact, already launched her own business, trying to um, popularize her slightly altered version of the 1920s um, game that she called Streamlined, that it was further simplified. Um, there were specific hands that she had created that players could go for, and she was actively promoting this form of the form of the game. And she was contacted by another woman named Viola Cecil, who said, I also want to um, standardize the game and therefore bring it back into popularity because they saw it as a great game and that they blamed its lack of popularity uh, on the fact that in the 1920s, there were so many different competing versions promoted by different marketers and instruction book authors that the game had fractured and it became difficult to have people play the same form of the game. And so they thought if we, if we standardize this, we can bring it back into popularity. Their vision was to have this be a kind of, again, mainstream revival. But how it happened was that the league was created by and spread along Jewish women's networks, particularly based in New York and the surrounding regions. And so it uh, began in the late 1930s, grew, continued to grow throughout the late years of the Depression and through World War II. But it was really the post-war era that created the dynamics um, that made Mahjong both possible as a kind of cultural phenomenon for Jewish American women and so important and so appealing for them. And that is both based about uh, on on a story of ethnicity and a story of gender. Um, and for Jewish Americans after World War II, uh, they're experiencing a demographic shift of upward mobility that's happening kind of en masse. It's certainly not uniform. It's certainly not universal. But after World War II, many of the uh, anti-Semitic discriminations of housing and employment and education were no longer legal. Um, and that uh, combined with the influence of the GI Bill um, meant that they, Jewish Americans participated in this um, post-war white move to the suburbs and participation in the baby boom um, when women are leaving the workforce and staying at home to raise young children. Men are um, getting college degrees and uh, earn, um, gaining white collar jobs. That, that post-war story of middle-class upward mobility that, is, um, that spreads across white Americans includes what become called white ethnics, especially Italians and Jews, for the first time. And so Jewish Americans in this era of suburbanization are even more likely to be moving to a spectrum of su suburbs and women who are disproportionately highly educated, meaning they're just gaining college degrees at a slightly higher than 
national average for women are also disproportionately leaving the workforce to um, raise young children. At the same time, this growing um, group of especially second generation Eastern European um, uh, uh, conservative synagogue culture of, of Jewish American life that's, that's beginning to consolidate, um, the folks who are participating in that are also creating transformative new patterns of leisure and leisure culture and landscapes around the country, most influentially the Catskill Mountains of, of upstate New York, but also lakeside beach clubs in Michigan, um, beach clubs on Long Island, um, along the East Coast. These, there's a landscape of leisure that um, develops a specific tempo where women and children uh, move to especially bungalow colonies during the hot summer to escape the heat. Men go back and forth on the weekends. And during this time, they're really able to take a break from that um, sort of uh, housewife-oriented life and create new relationships and friendships and patterns of relaxation that would otherwise be restricted to the summers. But Mahjong becomes this conduit where women start taking Mahjong, um, the knowledge of how to play, the rhythm of playing, back with them to their communities, teaching their friends. And um, over a number of years, this becomes an established cultural norm so that I could interview someone who said, you know, basically my, I, my husband expected his dinner on the table when he came home from work every night except Mahjong night. And one night a week, women would host or would travel to their friends' homes um, and play mahjong, and they weren't allowed to be bothered <laughs> by husbands or children. <laughs> and they were sharing this experience, right? They were at a similar life stage. And so although it did cross class lines and also it crossed ethnic lines, especially with Italian Catholic women being invited in, there was a very strong shaping culture that was around this shared experience that both allowed for the possibility of this kind of rhythm, and also in the way that women really experienced the potential isolation of this um, Cold War era life and the challenges of raising young children, of, of living life in 1950s culture. This was a, a necessary lifeline. And although it wasn't a cultural norm in other groups, I think many other women would have benefited from it. Um, and it was a really remarkable and um, strong culture that then, although the next generation in their own youth rebellion of the late 1960s and 1970s rejected this, this culture and all the suburban elements that it represented and was connected to, many people have powerful and positive associations with their, with children, with, um, having been raised as children, falling asleep, listening to the clicking of the tiles, listening to the laughter of their mothers. And this is something that you hear. I also read about, you know, Frank Ung is his memories of living above his um, family's general store in uh, Los Angeles, Chinatown. 
falling asleep, listening to his family, laughing and playing Mahjong. This too, this connects across context, across life experience. Um, and this powerful sensory element of connection, joy, especially when it's experienced by people who are uh, stressed out or overworked or um, depressed or fatigued. When children hear that, that laughter and that connection and, and might even be able to participate in it, it's so it, it connects across generations in a very, very strong and powerful way. Um, and the sets themselves then can get passed down. And so I talk to people who say, you know, when I play with my mother's set or when I play with my Bubby's set, my grandmother's set, it's like I'm playing with her. And it is uh, it, another layer of that kind of materiality and sensory element that becomes so much a part of culture but also about individual connection across time and place. I think that's probably as elegant a way to summarize, you know, the overarching themes of the book as, as we're going to get. I just, I want to just, again, you know, say what a pleasure it was to read um, this book and, and to see the whole arc of it span from the American club in Shanghai to the bungalow colonies, you know, in the Catskill mountains uh, and the way that it plays out, not only Chinese American or, or you know, Anglo uh, American uh, or, or Jewish American communities, but also you write in passing about the ways that African American, uh, you know, club women take up the game uh, in the 1920s. It really is such a rich um, uh, book and a rich look um, at, you know, what we think of oftentimes as a recent, um, you know, phenomenon, um, you know, of, of its popularity again in, you know, movies like Crazy Rich Asians with the Joy Luck Club, but actually has a deep history, not as deep as people assume. I think that's the other thing people think sort of assume, <laughs> right? Is that it, it's sort of a, a remnant of timeless Chinese tradition. And as you, as you explain, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, its emergence in the 1920s and the early 20th century really does speak to an, a time of an enormous change. And Elise, before we um, let you go, um, I wondered if you could tell us what you're working on now. What is your current research uh, looking at? Yes, thank you so much. Um, I plan to write a national history of lesbian feminism um, in the late 20th century, so 1970s, 80s, and 90s, with space as its central analytic and um, theme. So really especially looking at alternative publications, um, looking at domestic space again. That's one of the ways these projects connect. Um, and looking at alt, uh, economies that um, lesbian feminists sought to create outside a patriarchal home, outside capitalist norms, um, and really reimagine a a new society in a in a and try to live it out um, in a in a potentially revolutionary way. So that's my next project. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I can, as you said, certainly see the connections between both space, but also the themes of kind of liberation or possibility um, that, that, you know, connect to 
um, this book. So, Annalise, it was really such a pleasure to talk to you about Mahjong. Um, it, you know, congratulations on the publication of the book. Um, it's beautifully done and, uh, you know, deeply researched and so richly illustrated. And I hope that lots of folks will have a chance to uh, get a chance to read it um, and perhaps relive some of their own or their family's own memories of this wonderful game. So thank you for joining us today, Annalise. Uh, and thank you again for sharing your, your scholarship with us. Thank you. It was really a, an honor and a pleasure. That was my conversation with Annalise Hines, author of Mahjong, a Chinese game and the making of modern American culture, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. My name is Ian Shin, and this is New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.